Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good morning if you're joining us online today. We're glad you're with us. So we're moving along in the Sermon on the Mount, as Matt Hartman said. There's something about the opening phrase to this in Matthew chapter 5 that says, Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he began to teach them. And what he's going to teach them, he's going to teach them about God, and he's going to teach them about life. And it just helps me to be reminded who this teacher is. This is God in the flesh. He was instrumental in the creation of the universe. He is teaching us human beings about life with God, but also about life with one another. He's the savior of the world. He doesn't just save us as individuals, but there is a broader social aspect to his teaching. That is that we all have to get along with each other in our closest relationships, in marriages and family and parents and kids and our best friends, and also with people that we don't even know. And Jesus, the savior of the world, is teaching us how to do that. So the material we're gonna get in today is very heartfelt and it's complex. And as I get into it, I just want you to know that I know that. We live in very confusing days, very confusing times, and many of us have a whole host of different ways this content of what Jesus' topics are today lands for us. As we get into it, what is important to me in sharing is that we're in church. In other words, the church is first of all a theological organization. Its first interest is to humbly, accurately teach who God is. And then when we are seeking to humbly and accurately teach who God is, there are all kinds of associated things that come with that in terms of what our lives look like. So this content is going to touch on a whole like avalanche of things that Jesus unleashes in this section. Some of this is gonna have some PG-13 content to it. And I say that very sincerely. Some people have said it's helpful to me when you say that. And if that means you want to find another spot this morning, we appreciate that, understand that. But I just wanted to say that. Okay, 20 foot high banner out in the concourse that has the Beatitudes on it. Sermon on the Mount is a lot more than the Beatitudes, but the 20 foot high banner has its own way of making its own expression. The teaching of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is very high, it's very tall, it's very elevated, it's so much bigger than we are. And I invited people last week, I wanna to continue to do it. Maybe sometime during the week you can find 15 or 20 minutes and come over and just sit in a seat in the concourse quietly here and just spend time reflecting and reading those things and thinking about them. The height of the teaching which challenges our hearts is not to put us down, but to invite us up. And that's really important. Jesus is teaching very elevated life with God, and the intention of it is to lift us up. The motive is love, the ethic is grace and truth, and the intent is human flourishing. So here we pick up the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. Raka was a word that basically, and it's going to get picked up here, means you fool or you idiot. Okay, so, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne, or by the earth for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Okay, so I received this teaching, and I think, first of all, my goodness, what a list of topics, and they just come out like an avalanche of teaching from Jesus. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to change religion as the people knew it. The way the people knew it, to whom he's speaking, knew it was, religion was, if everything looks right on the outside, that's what's important to pay attention to. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to change the whole thing here, and he's basically going to say, all of this life with God that we're talking about, all this religion, the history of Israel, what it's all about, what it's intended for, is an intimate relationship with God, and all of that takes place first at the hidden places in our hearts. And so Jesus is going to say, it's not just about your external actions. Your external actions are an overflow of the heart. So we're going to talk about the heart. Now, later in the sermon, he's going to get to talking about how adept we are at creating deceptions so that our external actions make an appearance of what our hearts look like when they're not actually accurate to our hearts. And so he's going to dismantle that as well. So... In verses 21 through 24, we begin with Jesus saying, you've heard it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Most of us hear that, and that doesn't create too much tension, at least in its clarity. At least in its clarity. You shall not murder. Okay, but then he goes on to say, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What he's going to do when he talks about murder is he's going to connect it to anger. And he's going to connect it to anger in our hearts. And he's going to lead us to an understanding that the murderous act is the overflow of a murderous heart. And here we begin to get challenged. As I read through this content, there are different topics in here. I am deeply challenged by various aspects of the topics. And I suspect every one of us in the room will be deeply challenged one way or another by what he's talking about today. 
particularly when he's talking about the quality of our hearts. And when we're looking at this batch of content in our confusing day, in our secular society, very challenging, very complex. So he's talking about murder, and then he ties it to anger. And what he's insinuating is that the murderous act is the overflow of a murderous heart. What the Sermon on the Mount is going to be rendering for us in the largest macro way is, what does a life with God look like when my heart becomes a pure place of devotion to God? And none of us reaches that fully. But the sermon is an invitation to keep climbing up to this beautiful invitation of the heights that Jesus is offering us. So murder and anger are going to introduce this section of the Sermon on the Mount into its relational and social implications. Every one of the topics that he's gonna touch upon here today has very important relational and social implications. Most of us in American Christianity only think about Christianity for what it means for me individually. What does it mean in my life? How does it affect me as an individual? Of course, there are implications for us as individuals, but there are also very, very important implications for societies. And in the overly American individualized version, we often miss the very important elements that have to do with how is not only an individual going to flourish, but how is a society going to flourish? And remember, this is Jesus. He's the savior of the world. He's not just saving, picking individual people. His heart is for all people and getting along with one another. Okay, so let me put it down to something pretty simple. I once heard this statement, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. I heard that decades ago, and it's sustained over time. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. And a thread running through all four of the topics he's going to touch about today are right relationships. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. And so anger has a very significant implication in our relational lives. There are times in life where anger is an appropriate thing. There are times in life where there is injustice and evil being parlayed, and anger is the appropriate response. The Bible doesn't ever tell us don't ever be angry. What the Bible calls us to is what we do with our anger. John Christostom, one of the church fathers from many, many centuries ago, said the one who is never angry is a fool, but so is the one who feeds it. And so we begin into questions of what do we do with our anger? That's the question. We are human beings, and the Sermon on the Mount is going to very much lay the groundwork. We are human beings. And what does it mean to be a human being, and how should we function as human beings? So Jesus acknowledges anger, but the Bible in its larger sweep is always going to call us to an account of having the self-control for what we do with our anger. So anger is sometimes right. The question is, what are we going to do with it? In Ephesians 4.26, we have this simple little phrase, be angry, yet do not sin. In other words, there are appropriate times in life for anger, but don't allow yourself to feed and fuel your anger so that you begin to sin in it. Anger at injustice, handled the right way, would bring virtue and goodness in opposition to the injustice and the darkness. But anger mishandled is where it becomes a bad thing and even a murderous possible thing. Dale Bruner says, 
Protecting human life is the world's most important service, next only to the protection of the word of God. Jesus' ethic is not heroic in being geared to unusual situations, but in asking for unusual Christians in all the usual situations. So many of the things that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount are the interactions that happen in the daily back and forth of life, sometimes the challenging parts, sometimes the easy parts. So Bruner says protecting human life is the world's most important service next only to the protection of the word of God. And so Jesus' ethic isn't heroic in being geared to unusual situations, but in asking for unusual Christians in all the usual situations. So here is a very important framework for us to keep in mind with all of this. And I think it's particularly apt for our days. When God is rejected, there is a predictable sequence of effects for human beings. First will be deception. When God is rejected, deceptive ideas will begin to hold sway. These will be deceptive ideas about who God is, deceptive ideas about who we as human beings are, and therefore deceptive ideas about how we are ordered, what our identity is, and how we live our lives. So the first one is deception. The deception will lead to distortion, distorted understanding of God and distorted understanding of human beings. What this will lead to is depression. When our identity becomes distorted and our behaviors follow suit, we will become depressed as the lies and the distortions seep into our psyche. And then the fourth in the sequence is destruction. The deception will lead to distortion, which will lead to depression, which will lead to destruction, as the weight of all of this simply becomes too much for us. And so this is why Dale Bruner is talking also about guarding the word of God. So then he's going to say this. He's going to say, you can't say to your brother or sister, you're a fool or I hate you. And in essence, he's going to then say, before you lay your gift at the altar of God, be reconciled with your brother or sister. Note first, he's talking about relationships within the family of God. What Jesus teaches frequently is the practical heart of God our Father toward his children. And what he means in this simple, clear statement is, you can't tell God, I love you, while simultaneously saying, but I hate my brother or sister. If you're a parent and one of your kids came to you and said, Dad, I love you, but I hate my sister, it doesn't add up to the heart of God, which is unified in love for all of his children. So he's saying, if you're going to say you love God, then we have to do the work of being reconciled to our brothers and sisters in the family of God. Okay, so the first one is murder and connected to anger. The next one, as we move further along in verses 27 through 30, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. It's very important that we grasp the cultural context into which Jesus is speaking. It's a very patriarchal, very male-dominated culture. Women were treated very dismissively, and men were given the position basically that women could be treated any way they wanted to treat women. They could do with them whatever they wanted to do. And when Jesus begins to teach in the New Testament, he's going to bring tremendous dignity and empowerment to the position of women in the culture. So when he says, you shall not commit adultery, I think most of the men would have said, yeah, well, according to religious law, we know you're not supposed to do that already, Jesus, so what's new? What's new is, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. 
And I think pretty much every man in the crowd would have said, then I'm shot, then I'm sunk. That may be true in our day. I think it was certainly true in that day. So he says, you, should, you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. So this brings about challenging questions, but I think we have to address them to a certain degree. What is it to look at a person who you find very attractive and admire their beauty, let's say? Male or female, you see somebody and you think, that is a really, really attractive person. What do you do with that? Is it wrong to look at a person and think, that is a really attractive person? I don't think that's wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. God has created beauty, and if you can look at a person and say, that is a beautiful woman, that's a really attractive or handsome man. If we could do that, we could give glory to God. The challenge is our hearts don't do that too well. Our hearts get a little bit tangled in a lot of different webs. In other words, to not admire beauty, to not see somebody you find attractive, to not admire the beauty would make us not human. But what would it be to admire the beauty and be human in a beautiful way? This is what Jesus is getting at. To lust for someone or something is to desire to make it yours for your use and your pleasure. So could you look at a person, could a, could a man look at a woman and say, that's a beautiful woman? And could you simply allow the admiration? All right, let's change the topic a little bit and say, what if you're looking at a beautiful sunset? Pretty much every one of us in the room has looked at a beautiful sunset. You might have even been so enthralled with it that you pulled up a chair and decided to just sit and see the beauty of it. Usually when you look at a beautiful sunset, it wells up a certain sense of, God, thank you, this is so beautiful. But usually there's not something in you that wants to own the sunset, that wants to make it yours for your use. So we are putting ourselves in a position of grateful admiration. It's just beauty and it wells up gratitude to God. This becomes much harder for us when we're looking at human beings. And Jesus is speaking most particularly to men in this situation. So what he's saying is, if you look at a woman and admire her beauty, fine. But if you turn it into next steps that desire to make her yours for your use, this is wrong, it's adulterous. In other words, the heart of this injunction is to protect the value of the human person. And human people are not to be objectified or turned into objects for our use or for our desire. Okay, so Galatians chapter five has a beautiful little section about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I've talked about this before at Hope, but I think it's really significant. Let's take a look at this for a moment. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is described in verse 22 and three, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I have always been mystified and attracted to, there's a list of nine words, but one of them is so unlike the others. It's like when you were a little kid and you were like, which one of these is not like the others? And you're given this list, and here's this list of all these flowery, hallmark cards kinds of words. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and then self-control. It's like so different than the feel of all the other words. What the scriptures are saying is, if the spirit of God is resident within us, 
We as human beings have the ability to operate with self-control. It makes us different than animals that do not have this. The ability to operate with self-control is to have an impulse but override it because we know of a wiser, more virtuous thing to do than allow the impulse to just run in the direction of the desire. Notice it goes on to verse 25 to say, since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. I think the Holy Spirit could look at a beautiful woman or an attractive man and say, what a beautiful woman, what an attractive man. But that's the way the Spirit would do it. Once we turn it from that to something where we objectify or want to do something with or make the person subject to us, we have lusted and committed adultery. To be a human being, you can't not have hormones, but you can express self-control and operate in a dignified way. Ephesians 4.27 says this, don't give the devil a foothold. It's a simple little interesting phrase because here Jesus is going to go on and say, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I can remember talking about this when I was in college with some friends. You know, we're brand new Christians. We're like, does he mean that? Like, should we really pluck our eye out? Jesus is using a teaching form in his day called dramatic hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point. So what Jesus is saying is, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He means pay attention to whatever it is that you need to address so you can stay away from this sin. So since we're talking about lust, if pornography on the internet is a problem for you, then do what you need to do to either put filters on your computer or have an accountability partner or address the issue. You may know this, pretty much every study about pornography, secular, religious, and everyone, talks about the damage to the psyche of the human heart and to the damage relationally, and particularly to our, uh, its impact on intimate relationships. So what Jesus is saying is, don't give the devil a foothold. What this phrase means in Ephesians 4.27 is, Satan is trying to get in your life, okay? He's an adversary, he wants to bring you down. And so you're trying to close the door so that he can't have entrance. He's trying to get his foot in the door so you can't close it. And this is the metaphor that Paul's speaking about when he says, don't give Satan a foothold. Don't give him a place where he can get his foot in the door and keep you from closing it on him. So what does it mean? It says, whatever you need to pay attention to, whatever area of your life causes this difficulty... Do what you need to do to shut down what makes that area difficult. Because a heart that is given over to pure devotion to God is the goal, and this is where we are most set free as human beings. Okay, so I read a book that I just finished recently. It's called The Good Life. It sounds a little bit like a beach read, but it's actually got a little more to it than that. This is a result of a study that is the longest study of human social observation, the good life. It's a Harvard study. The study started in 1938. It has continued to study generations of people. It's now in the fourth generation of the leaders of the study. And the current leaders of the study are two PhDs at Harvard named Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz. Spoiler alert, 
If you want the cliff notes, the entire thick Harvard study book says the number one thing that leads to human happiness is the quality of our relationships. Not your money, not your power, not your social status in terms of being admired. The number one thing that leads to human happiness, the longest social study of human life, the number one thing is the quality of our relationships. I was reading the book and I came across this simple little sentence in the book from Waldinger and Schultz and it says, people are terrible at knowing what's good for them. And I read it and I thought, is that not the truth? People, we're terrible at knowing what's good for us. We chase it in all the wrong places and we constantly leave ourselves with disillusionment and heartache. The point that Waldinger and Schultz are making is what the study is revealing is what's good for us is the quality of our relationships. And so much of what Jesus is talking about in this section is how to keep relationships in the beautiful place. None of us can live isolated from one another. COVID has taught us so much about this. Jane Howard quoted in the book says, call it a clan, call it a network, call it a tribe, call it a family, whatever you call it, whoever you are, you need one. There's a lot of research today that's talking about the incredible increase in single family households, AKA people who live alone. This is ramped up dramatically in our culture. Call it a clan, call it a network, call it a tribe, call it a family. How about call it a church? Whatever you call it, whoever you are, you need one. The significance of relationships from the book. You know what relationships are? They're hard work. Any relationship is hard work. Any lasting relationship is hard work. The option is to do the hard work of isolation and loneliness. Either way is going to be hard work over time. So next Jesus goes in verse 31 and 32, ready for his next category. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. What Jesus is doing in this teaching, he's speaking into a culture where men could divorce women for any reason. And a man could just say it verbally and say I divorce you and you're out, kick her out of the house. When that happened, the woman was basically destitute, almost like a leper, rejected from a man, she's out on her own, and there's no real future or hope for her. So the man has no responsibility in that action, the woman is left destitute. What Jesus is saying is, if you divorce a woman, you have to give her a, a, a certificate of divorce that says why you have divorced her and you sign your name on it. Like, you're going to have to own up to this. And if a woman has a certificate of divorce that shows the responsibility that the man has it, it gives her much greater opportunity to remarry. What he's doing is protecting women in a culture where men had made women disposable. Dale Bruner says, Jesus saw through the sexist strategies of his times and he returned believers to the original will of God in instituting marriage at all, namely, equal dignity and permanent union of one man and one woman in marriage. So anytime we live in a culture of sexual boundarylessness, women will always pay the highest price. So if you care about women and you care about the position of women, you would care about this. Women pay the highest price emotionally and they pay the highest price on the possibility of pregnancy. 
And so Jesus is upholding the beauty of the value of marriage. Okay, so we do a lot of marriage teaching at Hope, book on love and that sort of thing. Many years ago, a mentor of mine came to me and he said to me, David, when you marry couples, are you teaching them why they're getting married? And I said, uh, yeah. And he said, no, but are you teaching them why they're getting married? And I could tell he was on to something. I didn't have the answer he was on to. I said, what do you want to say to me? He said, are you teaching couples that they are getting married to display the glory of God? And I said, I am now. <laughs> His point was, marriage has this sacred and beautiful invitation from God that has many beautiful invitations. And yes, plenty of hard work. But what he was saying is he's lifting the vision of this. The first call for married couples is that our relationship is displaying the glory of God. He made us male and female. The union of the man and the woman is displaying who God is theologically. And the idea is that when people see the way you love one another, they would gain a glimpse of how God loves us. So a while back I was doing pre-marriage counseling for a niece of mine and her fiance. Interesting surprise, if you go into ministry, a lot of your larger family ask you if you would do their weddings, which creates some interesting and fun situations. So I was doing this on Zoom with them because they live far away. So I asked them, why are you getting married? And they were quiet for a minute. And then my niece Liz said to me, not my wife, but my niece Liz said to me, Uncle David, what would you say to that? I said, Liz, you're getting married because you want to know that there's a sacred center in your relationship and that this is not an ordinary everyday thing and it's not a hookup and you're not disposables for one another. You want to know that there's a sacred center in the relationship. And she said to me, that is so helpful because all of our friends are saying to us, why would you get married? Why would you do that? Why would you tie yourself down? It's so archaic. You're getting married because you want to know that there's a sacred center in this relationship. So when Jesus speaks of divorce this way, in all the complexities, and many of them in our day, he speaks with a remarkable grace to the challenges and the frailties of our lives but he's elevating the, the picture of marriage to a beautiful invitation. And the final section he talks about is oath-keeping. Seems like the one that's not like the others. So he says, I tell you, don't swear at all when you make an oath, not by heaven, not by God's throne. What he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount in so many places is he's saying, stop the ridiculous religiosity of the way you're piling all this up. What he's speaking to was people were making promises back then and they would say things like, I promise on the temple in Jerusalem and on a stack of Bibles and on the heart of God, cross my heart, hope to die, absolutely double dog promise. And he's saying, just stop that. Stop it. When you make a promise, say yes and keep it. Say no and keep it. And don't layer up all this foolish religiosity. I mean, someone said to me, David, I swear on a stack of Bibles. What do you say to that? How many? Five. Four wasn't enough? What about three? Why not just one? Jesus is saying, just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. You know that promises made have remarkable implications on our relational lives. 
remarkable implications on our relationships with one another. So this is all about the integrity of the promises. This section of the Sermon on the Mount is about the value of human life, the dignity of the human person, the sanctity of marriage, and the integrity of promises. All of them interacting with one another, holding each other up like the four legs of a table. And if one is missing, it all topples. So we're invited to communion this morning. Let's pray for a moment as we prepare for that. Lord God, I think of the prayer that says, to you all hearts are open and no secrets are hid. So Lord, we come to you and we ask you to heal our hearts, to forgive our sin, to make us new, to make our hearts a place of increasingly pure devotion to you, which we know means we are increasingly becoming human beings and we are increasingly becoming free and joyful and dignified. Not like the animals, but like human beings who have the ability to pursue this kind of dignity and honor. So Lord, would you meet us at this communion table today? We pray in your name. Amen.